name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames cast. And on today's episode, I'm going to be taking a look at Edwin S. Porter's film, The Great Train Robbery. Um, before I begin, a quick little piece of housekeeping. Um, I have been... Uh, I went through a phase when the uh, energy crisis um, was upon us of deleting many of the subscriptions I had to various streaming services. Um, I have slowly began to uh, resubscribe to a few of them at alarming rates. And I decided to give the Studio Canal uh, app a go. And it's one I can heartily recommend. I think it's only four quid a month. Um, Studio Canal have a great library of films. Then they, they have kind of gone, I think, with the crowd pleasers on this app, things like Apocalypse Now, The Third Man, the John Carpenter films that they own. But I have noticed that the um, the films are being updated on a weekly basis. Uh, a lot of old war films that I really like, things like Dunkirk are on there and things like that. Um, and I think this app, and the other thing I quite like about the app as well is that a lot of the versions of the films they have are the remastered versions that they have worked on. And if you have got the capability, they do have HDR and 4K streaming available. So um, definitely, I think that is one that is worth giving a shout. I've also subscribed to the BFI app, which I don't know why I didn't do before. It's incredibly cheap. I think that's another one that's only like 3 Um That has a really great library as well. And what I've noticed is that some of the prints on that do appear to be the ones that have been supplied by Criterion. And um, I know we don't have the Criterion streaming channel in the UK. Um, I believe you can get it if you've got some VPN things set up. But overall, both of those apps, Studio Account and BFI, well worth the money, I think. BFI one especially, I've, I've really enjoyed. There's some fantastic old documentaries that I've been going through on that. So with that all aside, I'm going to crack on with this week's episode and a look at The Great Train Robbery. When I think of the West as experienced through cinema, it is a place that existed in a kind of weird netherworld between fact and fiction, and despite the subject matter of a Western film giving an indication of its place in time, for example, the events of The Wild Bunch, we see the signs of modernity in that film, the guns, the cars, the political subtext of the film, my brain never quite is able to accept the fact that it is set in 1911. This feels far too recent. Surely The West was something that existed far long ago than that. And it's also one of the most iconic genres in all of cinema. And despite having its various subgenres, it is for the most part a genre that we associate with America, from towns like Deadwood to John Forbes' obsession with Monument Valley. And it has a cast of historical characters who, were they not based on reality, would surely be fictional creations. Calamity Jane, Wild Bill Hickok. They all blur into a mythical soup that makes the like of Frank in Once Upon a Time in the West a fictional character who might as well have been real. Or certainly that's how my brain processes it all. And the reason I'm talking about The Great Train Robbery today is that it fascinates me because it is a Western made at the very beginning of cinema and was made in 1903 in a time where real-life outlaws such as Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid were still robbing trains and would not be hunted down for another three years. And it also predates the events depicted in The Wild Bunch by eight years. It's an incredibly violent film and that may suggest that the direction of American cinema was always going to love violence. Perhaps not celebrate it, but make an integral part of the movie, of the American movie-going experience. 
consisting of 14 scenes and running at just over 11 to 12 minutes, depending on what version you're watching. It is a violent, quite brilliant piece of cinema that would be the first blockbuster of its kind and would open the floodgates for a new type of film-going experience. It was the bridge between cinema as novelty and cinema as commercial and indeed artistic venture. The West has long been a source of fascination in early cinema. Early scenes from the Edison Company showed Buffalo Bill and his Wild West show, as well as scenes of Native Americans in shorts such as Buffalo Dance, made in 1894. These scenes were normally a static single shot made for kinetoscope, a novelty attraction found at fairs, vaudevilles and arcades. It's always worth noting that film was a technical innovation. It was not invented for art's sake. And when I was researching, when I was doing research for this episode, I watched a ton of early films and found them to be utterly mesmerising. I wondered what their contemporary audience would have made of them also. Would the sheer novelty have been enough? Would they have questioned the realism or would they have even actually cared? Would they have wanted more, which judging by how much money films were making, the answer was clearly yes. Enter then the Edison Company and Edwin S. Porter. I don't know enough about Edison and I'm well aware there is controversy there. But one thing the man clearly knew was that film had potential. He faced competition from his rival studios and instructed Porter to work on the more ambitious project that would become The Great Train Robbery. Several firsts have been attributed to the film over the years. It was the first fictional film. It was the first film to use a medium shot. And it was the first Western all of these are untrue, and in the case of being the first Western, that is actually one which probably can go to a film called Kit Carson that had its patent filed before The Great Train Robbery came out. But what I think The Great Train Robbery does is lay something down of a marker in relationship to the themes that would be explored in American cinema from then until the present day. Our outlaws burst into the telegraph office and wrestled the guard to the floor. Now, we don't know much about them. There's no names or close-up backstories. We just thrust straight into the scenario. And Porter is positioning us with the outlaws. This is their narrative, as it so often is in the Western. And here, so early on in the genre, we're about to be shown their criminality would eventually lead to their undoing. But first, we're going to have some fun watching them at work. And the shot composition in scene two is indicative of this. Porter positions the outlaws to the left of the frame as the train takes on water. We see one of the train operators resupplies the gang peek out to see him. It's almost pantomime. There's an urge to shout out that the unsuspecting innocent. But there's a wonderful playfulness to this scene because in a way you feel like you're an accomplice to it. We know what is going to happen with the gang. We have in this moment been placed in a situation where our knowledge is the same as them. Perhaps they are even taking the cue to advance from a person in the same place we are watching on from. Voyeurism in film, even at this time, is an, clearly an integral part of the experience. And violence is often what we are snuck into to have a good gore pat. So in scene three, when the, film, when the gang gets to work with the robbery, they waste no time in shooting the hapless railway worker dead not before he's able to throw the key to the loot box out the train. And despite putting up a valiant fight, he's quickly shot dead for his troubles. In Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, we were through the soft focus of Conrad Hall's gorgeous photography and Burt Bacharach's quaint pop songs, invited to believe the outlaws are rather courteous, affable type of a person who actually cared about the welfare of those he was robbing. And when it was Paul Newman 
with that, let's be honest, not exactly ugly face, you were rather cynically perhaps being prepared for the heartbreak of the obvious conclusion to his exploits, with George Roy Hill sparing us the gory details of a free frame, immortalising them in history. We liked them and we didn't want to see them have to face up to their actions. It was sentimental in the extreme. In comparison, the great film with the great train robbery feels like it has a very hard edge. These guys are bad, very bad, and the violence from here escalates. The revisionist western had its protagonists contemplating their actions. We were appalled by what we saw, the bloodshed of the wild bunch, the hazard resignation of William Money in Unforgiven. The outlaws in the great train robbery are the people these were, and this is the West before it was revived, and producers wanted number one Burt Bacharach hits. And just as a side note, it's widely speculated that one of the influences for the story of the great train robbery was actually Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. They were as I said before, still active in this um, world at the time. They had committed a few years before one of their biggest train robberies. So it's highly likely, I think, that they would have been the contemporary uh, influence for what we see depicted in the film. Going back to the great train robbery, though, we see in scene three the sheer technical bravado of the piece. The match of the passing landscape is absolutely seamless. You bind to the motion of the train moving with scarcely a thought. And of course, the shootout is ludicrous, theatrical in this stream. But every effort is made to convince you of movement. It's pure cinema and the match shot here is in all its glory. And Potter's next scene dispels any possible sense of the artificial as he chooses the sequence to be atop of the actual moving train. It's good direction. The match shot in the previous sequence established movements. And had the shot been a static one in scene four, our brain would have noticed the change instantly. And this also adds a layer of dramatic attention to the scene. In short, it feels far more dangerous than it actually is. And if you thought the outlaws were bad, then things are about to get a lot worse. In trying to take control of the train, one of the crew attempts to fight back and for his troubles has his head smashed in with a lump of coal. A very subtle edit hides the fact that a real body has been swapped for a dummy and with the blocking of a prop, our outlaw is seen smashing the poor guy's head in with looks like actual physical power before launching the corpse off the train. The man could have just been shot, but Porter makes the scene about the violence and it goes on for way longer than I think probably it probably needs to and I think this goes back to the idea of voyeurism of violence it's shocking it's brutal it's dangerous and it's the forbidden fruit that cinema allows you to see how many times do we forgive characters psychotic ways in films because we like them or we find them funny or perhaps they're actually good dads and it relates back to the western William Money in Unforgiven is a broken man by his past a murderer of anything that walks Yet we can empathise and find sympathy in the character, and that is part of the Western's charm. In scene six, we see the passengers forced off the train and robbed at gunpoint. Possibly we could understand the murder of the train crew. However, the gang's crimes now grow far darker. A man tries to run away and is shot dead. And what's worse, he's shot dead in the back for good measure. Making good their escape, then using the now uncoupled train, and we are under no illusion whatsoever. These men must pay for their crime. And one trope of the Western is this. Your past will always come back to haunt you one way or the other. And the outlaws, being the outlaws they are, 
are now ostracized from society if they weren't before and make for the hills and the lack of close-up and the names even gives this film gives it a particularly chilling ambiguity to audiences these guys could be out there and when we finally meet our heroes or the posse who will chase them they're singing and dancing in a tavern apparently taking great delight in firing their guns at the feet of a friend for comic effect I'm not entirely sure how this could have been perceived as humour, but I guess it was another time and place. Again, like the outlaws, we don't know anything about them. And all we do know as an audience is that the outlaws are out there and have to be brought to justice for their crimes. And I do love the scene of the dancing as well. It's a direct contrast to the brutality that comes before. It suggests suggests the community of the West, the men and women dancing, enjoying and are forced to enter into a vax of violence in order to maintain law and order. This is again a theme repeated throughout the genre. The the posse can be corrupt, it can be noble, it can, in the case of High Noon, be indifferent. In The Great Train Robbery, there is an instant reaction to the situation. They're going on a mission to get the bad guys right there and then. And the film's last two scenes depict the gang being hunted down a horseback and then crept up on and dispatched in one long take. Porton uses space to create tension, the outlaws in the foreground and the posse creeping up from them behind before the shooting starts. It is legitimately an exciting end to the film and the great train robbery is action-packed and its finale has to happen given what we've seen before. And one could easily imagine the audience's reaction to it, whipped up into a frenzy and then cheering on the good guys until the job gets done. And in its brief running time, it packs a lot in. It creates the need for violence to occur. These men must be taken out for the sake of public good. They're beyond apprehension. They need to be permanently removed from causing more harm. The authorities are nowhere to be seen, and the issue is the townspeople must resolve themselves. And despite being made in 1903, it suggests that America was still a country whereby the rule of law was something individuals themselves had at times to be responsible for. And though we don't know who is in the posse, we do know by their actions they have a moral code by which so many men in the genre live by, and the overwhelming desire to confront violence with violence. The Western is a predominantly masculine genre, and The Great Train Robbery is a great primer for the themes that would explore over and over again. Violence as a mean to an end, modernity as symbolised by the westward advance of the train and the civilization it was bringing. Although by 1903 the West was still have some time to go, it was on the wane. America was at the crossroads in its history, slowly evolving into the country that would come to dominate that century. And The Great Train Robbery is a valuable document in this regard. And its ending is a thing of pure brilliance. The last scene is not the outlaws being gunned down. It's one of them, played by the actor Justice D. Barnes, pointing his gun at the camera in a mid-shot and firing his pistols. Distributors were given the option to have this at the beginning or the end. Porter preferred it to be at the end, and I think it certainly works better there. The shot resembles a wanted poster come to life, and it's another violent moment. And by the composition... It's the most intimate of the whole film. It is a warning. People like him are out there. And it's also a little reminder of the appeal of watching people, of watching bad people like him on the film. The Great Train Robbery marries the West with violence and America's obsession with it. Martin Scorsese copied that end scene at the end of Goodfellas with Joe Pesci back from the dead firing at the camera. Gangster, outlaw, road cops, hitmen, American cinema has always delivered up murder and mayhem from its inception and judging by the public's reaction to the great train robbery the appetite was there from day one 
It was, by all accounts, a complete blockbuster. And I love this film. It's gloriously fun, subversive, and its short running time legitimately feels like packs way more in than it actually does. It's a revisionist Western before anyone thought the West needed revising and has the added layer of being made at a time when the West still existed. Whatever your favourite Western is, this one demands to be watched. You can find it virtually everywhere online. It's in the public domain. I got a DVD copy of it for some early films, but I know it, you can. it's on YouTube and I'll put a link in the notes. And if I ever, ever get to make a Western, there's definitely going to be a scene where my outlaws are watching the Great Train Robbery, getting ideas, perhaps even laughing at the ludicrousness of it, but most importantly, having a great time watching it. So that's going to be it for this episode of the 24 Frames cast. Um, I will be back very soon with another episode. Um, you can email me at um, 24framescast at gmail.com. And um, there will be, I'm just in the process of putting the next Bond episode together, which is going to be Bond through the years of Roger Moore. So as soon as that's ready, I will bang it out on the feed. Many thanks for listening and I'll be in contact soon. Bye.